Hello and welcome to The Ballpark. I'm Chris Gilson, the Managing Editor of the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. On the 5th of March, 2020, Professor Leah wright Rigueur joined the U.S. Center for the event, African Americans in a White House, Presidential Politics, Race and the Pursuit of Power. Professor wright Rigueur is an Associate Professor of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School and the Harry S. Truman Associate Professor of American History at Brandeis University. At the event, she discussed the transformation of black politics, using the Department of Housing and Urban Development scandal of the 1980s and 90s as a case study, she outlined how the racial politics of presidential administrations have paved the way for patterns of political misconduct that continue to today. I want to start, everyone. Uh, good evening. Thank you for being here. My name is Emma Bowie-Warren, and I'm an assistant professor in the International History Department here at the LFC. And alongside my colleague, Professor Matthew Jones, we are the two kind of co-conveners of a new seminar series titled Race and Gender in US Politics in Historical and Contemporary Perspective, which is organised by the LSC US Centre. And tonight is our first seminar, so welcome. Before I introduce our speaker, I would like to say a huge thanks to the LSC US Centre for providing us funds, and in particular for the Phelan Family Lecture Series for providing us um, with the resources to host this event. In particular, I'd like to highlight and thank three people, actually a couple more people actually. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the LSC US Centre's director, Professor Peter Trubowitz. I would like to thank the LSC US Centre um, manager, Ade Akande Pierre-Noel, and Centre assistant, Saga Lepanen and Chris Gilson for all of their help and support in our event today. Tonight, we're really delighted uh, to welcome Professor Leah wright Rigger to the LFC. She is an Associate Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and the Harry S. Associate Professor of American History at Brandeis University. She holds a PhD in History from Princeton University and is the author of the award-winning book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power. And it was this excellent book which really introduced me to Professor Rigger's research um, and it's great that she's able to be here today to share some new research with us. So Professor Rigger's research focuses on modern African-American history and 20th century United States political and social history. Her writing, research and commentary has been featured in a number of outlets ranging from the New York Times to the Washington Post, The Atlantic, MSNBC and CNN. She's currently working on a book manuscript titled Mourning in America, Black Men in a White House, which uses the Housing Urban Development or HUD scandal as a lens for exploring critical transformations in grassroots and elite black politics in the 1980s. Today, Professor Rigger will be speaking to us about her research and her talk is titled, as it is here, African-Americans in a White House, Presidential Politics, Race, and the Pursuit of Power. She'll be speaking for around uh, 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll have around 20 minutes for Q&A. Um, and this talk is going to be recorded and will be a podcast later on. So without further ado, please join me in giving the warmest of welcomes to Professor Rita. Okay, so thank you all for coming out 
during this season of uh, illness and uh, poor weather. And I have to say it is a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to be here. Um, last night I took part in the Ideas Festival and you guys were wonderful. And I really just wanted to say, uh, give a really uh, strong thank you for the initial invitation uh, to Ima Bong and, um, and to Matthew, because this has been a wonderful, just overall wonderful opportunity. Um, and I also wanted to thank, uh, make sure that I thank Ade for all of her work and all of the effort has, that has gone into organizing and you know making sure that everything runs smoothly, particularly making sure that I've been in the right place for the past two days. So thank you guys so much and thank you for having me here um, today. So what I wanted to do is talk to you a bit about this new project that I'm working on that actually falls quite uh, quite literally within the theme, the larger theme of the seminar series, um, and talks about African-Americans, uh, their relationship to the White House, um, but also dimensions of race, class, and gender. And I think part of why it's so important to me and why I'm so interested in this is because of the present day moment, particularly with regard to African-American uh, African politics, but US pro uh, politics more broadly. And I thought I'd start off with this image because I think it really encapsulates part of what I'm trying to do. So if you're not familiar with this, this is the laying of hands of Trump's kind of black surrogates on him during Black History Month. So this is pretty recent. I believe it was from uh, last week, laying of hands at the White House. And you'll see that there are a lot of moments like this in a couple of minutes where African-Americans are often gathered around this table for symbolic purposes. Um, and this is no different. But when this image comes out, it provokes pretty intense re public reaction, um, most, uh, most common of which is, you know, how does something like this happen? Right? This is supposed to be African-Americans, and Donald Trump in particular, are diametrically opposed. Um, out of every racial group within the United States, they deeply, deeply dislike them. So the roughly 90% have unfavorable views of Donald Trump. So roughly 90% believe that he is a racist, and not just say a closet racist, but an explicit um, racist. And then, of course, I think the thing that's really uh, interesting to me are the women in the picture, because black women in the United States, uh, roughly 96%, so approaching 100%, well within the margin of error, hold negative and unfavorable views of Don uh, Donald Trump. But who's front and center? Right? There's these two women, surrogates, Diamond and Silk. You may have heard of them. They're quite interesting. I'm happy to talk about them during the Q&A. But there's also another woman who's dressed in kind of Afrocentric garb, who is uh, holding up her hand and praying. So they're all praying over him. Um, and also led one of uh, the members, you can't see him in this photo, but one of the members of this committee to declare Donald Trump is our first black president. If you don't know anything, black people in the United States love declaring somebody the first black president. Right? This is not the first time something like this has happened. But part of you know what I wanted to do is think about what is this moment, something like this rooted in? How do we get a group of African-Americans endorsing you know, a president that people believe is corrupt, a president that people think is unethical, someone that African-Americans largely view as racist? How do we work through this? And that's what I'm really interested in doing because I think it says something much more broadly about the state of black politics within the United States. I wanted to uncover the groundwork of this and part of what I identified is that this is rooted, really rooted in the, a story that takes place in the 1980s. And it starts with this kind of idea of a black professional class and a changing of the guard. So if you pardon me, that's where I'd actually like to start. And I'd like to start off by telling you a very quick story about a figure named Lance Wilson. 
Now, Lance Wilson is an interesting is an interesting guy. He's kind of the epitome of what I like to call this new upper middle class, wealthy black professional elite of the 1980s. And he's kind of a caricature if we go by like the trappings of wealth. So he has a fancy car, right? He has a six-figure salary at the time. He has a personal yacht, multi-million dollar apartment. He's uh, got a summer house in Long Island, et cetera, et cetera. And before he becomes the president of the investment banking firm Payne Weber, he'd worked in the Reagan-helmed White House for many years. And he'd kind of accumulated this like all-star Rolodex of heavy hitters and had gained, garnered a reputation for being his political savvy, his charm, and kind of his intelligence, right? And so during his years, during his time at the White House, he's part of this small group of commanding black professionals and policy-making positions. You'll see, I mentioned this before, but here's another picture of a round table of African-Americans, very prominent African-Americans, sitting down with a pre Republican president that the vast majority of African-Americans at the time view as racist, as corrupt, as unethical. So history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it sure does like to remix itself once in a while. So he's part of this smaller group, and most of them arrive from the corporate sector. They bring their corporate experience with them to the federal government. They also bring their politics because most of them, as Wilson was, are members of the Republican Party. And at the very least, the understanding was that if you're going to be a Democrat and get a job in the Reagan administration, you have to believe and have faith in the Reagan ma uh, mantra, right? So you have to, at the very least, express this unquestioning faith in the religion of tax cuts, deregulation, and of course, the free market. And so part of what we see going on here is this idea and notions of power. And so Simeon Bicker, Booker, who's an author, reporter for Ebony Magazine, describes it as kind of this idea that this small group of black professionals possess some clout, and they're actually in position to control what little funding there is and money available there is for black communities. And by gaining access to this exclusive club, he argued, um, of this largely white house, Black professionals actually hold the fate of black people in their hands, right? So there's this idea of power dynamic, money, and access. But at the same time, right, if we look at this parable of Lance Wilson, if he represents the highs of the black professional term political class, then it's also, he also represents the lows. By 89, he's enmeshed in this corrupt political scandal that's coursing through the federal government, and just to give you a small example of you know, his Wilson's uh, involvement, at one point he earns $2 million in profits from the unethical sale of four government housing projects. And so he's investigated, he's later indicted on 24 counts of wrongdoing, including fraud, conspiracy, and making false statements and bribery. So he's not alone in this though. That's what's so interesting to me. Many of these black professionals actually find themselves in, ensnared in Reagan era government scandals. Um, as details of various corruption outrages begin to emerge during this period, it becomes increasingly clear that a number of uh, a number of Reagan's black professional class had participated in a game of deception and selfishness as part of a broader scheme to plunder the federal government and to plunder the federal coffers to line their own pockets. Right? There's this, it's a kind of representative of this ruthless individualism that if you understand African-American politics, no, is actually quite unique and is quite rare. But here it is happening in the White House and happening as, uh, amongst this cohort of black professionals. In a lot of ways though, Reagan's black professionals look a lot like their white counterparts. Over the course of nearly two decades, Congress and the Justice Department investigated, indicted, and convicted hundreds of lobbyists, consultants and federal uh, agents, uh, federal officials 
across agencies, departments, and other areas for actions related to their time in the Reagan administration. So Wilson and other black professionals like him are just one part of this overarching scandal-plagued uh, Reagan administration. And so while they often participated and often exacerbated this corruption, they weren't the architects of it. They didn't actually have enough power to do that. Instead, Reagan's black professionals, I think are, what I want to make the argument about is that they stand out because so many of them participated in it in the first place. It was really unique for this level of black people to have access to and participate in this level of corruption. Now, nearly all of the black professionals who are ensnared in this corruption scandal hail from one area. They come from housing and urban development. And I'm just gonna call it HUD for short to summarize and to kind of uh, uh, move through this pretty rapidly. So by 1998, the Justice Department has convicted 16 people of criminal offenses related to the misappropriation of four to eight billion dollars in monies set aside for low-income housing projects. And so I'm going to say that again because it's really, really important: four to eight billion dollars in funding meant for Section 8 low-income housing uh, set-asides. So this law includes real estate developers, two HUD assistant secretaries, Reagan's Secretary of the Interior, the U.S. Treasurer and many, many more. And to give you just kind of a level of scale, it is really, really quite unusual for officials within the White House to be convicted of crime and to be convicted of looting the federal piggy bank. It's usually outsiders who are committing fraud. This is happening because insiders are actually taking the money from federal coffers. Now, the HUD investigation also exposes the questionable practices of a number of members of the black professional class of the black elite, and this includes people like the Reverend Ralph Abernathy of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, who has a very famous affiliation with Martin Luther King, Massachusetts Senator Edward Brooke, Charles Evers, who is the brother of slain uh, civil rights activist Med Medgar Evers, and just many, many more. The other thing that we're seeing is new kinds of political partnerships during this period. And so what I mean during this, mean about this is that these are desegregated par uh, uh, partisan schemes. So, for example, we're seeing not just, say, groups of white officials who are engaging in corruption. We're now seeing interracial groups of uh, interracial groups of partnerships who are engaged in mass corruption. And these tend to be partisan uh, groups, so groups of Republicans across racial groups that are in, uh, participating in corruption. Now, other partnerships, however, while still political to some degree, were actually bipartisan, and that's new too. Right? bipartisan corruption that is happening within a Republican administration. And so it's driven by this kind of calculated interest in exploiting unregulated free market. And so I'll give you an example. Um, and these are some of the individuals who are indicted uh, during this period. But I'll give you an example. I think everyone perhaps in this room knows Paul Manafort, um, whose first brush with fame and infamy is not actually you know, the 2016 election, but is instead uh, this housing corruption scandal. So between 1986 and 87, Paul Manafort influenced peddling on behalf of his real estate clients, which included himself, pockets more than $30 million in federal monies designed for low-income public housing, while also raking in $300,000 in consulting fees. So it took more than two years to discover that Manafort's housing project, this housing project that he's working on in New Jersey, was actually a sham. So when congressional investigators show up, they find leaky buildings, rotted roofs, they find feces dripping from the ceiling, exposed pipes, no kitchens, no refrigerators, no doors on some of the houses. I mean, it's, it's an abject sham. Um, we also see that Manafort never faces indictment or prosecution uh, from the scandal. 
In fact, the notoriety from the scandal would end up bringing him bigger and newer clients, including domestically Donald Trump, and then internationally Mobutu Seko of Zaire, who says, I really like the way that man lies on TV, right? So that actually compels him to hire him. Victor Cruz, who is Manafort, just to go back, who's Van, uh, Manafort's uh, black business partner, is not so lucky. He's also a Democrat. He's a very prominent de Democrat from uh, Connecticut. He ends up being indicted on charges related to Seabrook, the Seabrook fiasco. And although he's eventually acquitted, the multi-year ordeal ends up destroying his professional life and career. Now, the plunder of HUD and the action of all of these officials are made all the more significant when we parallel and combine them with those of Ronald Reagan. Now, early in his first term, the president targets HUD. He guts it through a series of draconian budget cuts uh, between 1981 and 89, for example. Conservative and liberal sources estimate the total reduction in HUD funding at somewhere between 54 to 78 percent uh, of the budget. To put it in perspective, only one other agency or department saw itself targeted in this way, and that was the education department, and they only saw their budget cut by 4 percent. So imagine, 78 percent of the budget, of HUD's total budget, is gone by 1989. And so part of it is that HUD becomes Reagan's go-to federal punching bag, a convenient symbol of government waste and excess. And I just want to quickly point out, this is from the 80 campaign. The slogan is, let's make America great again. <laughs> um, so part of Reagan's goal is to really drain the swamp of federal bureaucracy. But his uh, interest in, in poverty and solving poverty solely revolve around the self-help and personal responsibility kind. So for example, Reagan is on Good Morning America one day in the 1980s and awkwardly argues that homeless people were, are homeless by choice, right? They want to be homeless or something like that. So this is tied back to this notion again that the uh, poor were drained on society and that the solution was again, sweeping tax and budget cuts or the destruction of say HUD. Now the nation's poor and working class, to no surprise of anyone in here, feels the burdens of these reductions. And this is especially true of black men and women as they're disproportionately represented amongst this population. The cuts in housing, coupled with other sweeping reductions uh, in social and welfare spending, ends up having a lasting impact on any number of domestic issues, including homelessness rate, availability of, uh, availability of affordable, safe, uh, and quality housing, and even black wealth creation. So the pol that political elites, what I argue is that political elites, with the full knowledge of the decimated budget, would spend eight years looting and plundering HUD, billions, uh, billions from money uh, meant for poor and low uh, income communities is actually egregious. But in the words of kind of the Newsweek editorial board, for example, HUD officials were poverty pimps getting rich and powerful by subverting programs intended to help the poor. Now, the interesting part here to me is that almost no scholarship has covered the HUD scandal in depth. Well, concerning this actually isn't surprising because that near while it was happening, nearly everyone missed this actual plunder of HUD. Now there are reasons, there are lots of reasons for, these, uh, uh, for this neglect, and I'm happy to get into this. So for example, like the pu American public has housing fatigue. They're so sick of housing scandals that when an actual housing scandal happens that is perpetuated by the federal government, they almost ignore it altogether, right? Um, but there's part of what I wanna emphasize is that there's the fact that uh, there's a failure of democracy that is captured in HUD, and that the nuances of the HUD scandal simply weren't visible to the public at the time, who initially saw nothing wrong with HUD's dramatic transformation during the period. So for, in other words, for many Americans, right, as they saw the gutting of HUD, 
they argued, well, HUD in the federal government and democracy is actually working as intended, right? Despite the outward harm that's happening to black and poor communities and working class communities. So in this sense, I argue that the HUD scandal is a useful heuristic lens for exploring all these questions of race, class, politics, and political ideology of the 1980s and into the 1990s. Now, part of what I try to do here is complicate this larger, uh, larger narrative of the Reagan 1980s. So my project, my book project grapples with what the scholar Jody Melamed has described as the diffuse and deadly capacities of administrative power, or in this case, the Reagan administration to give license uh, to do harm under seemingly neutral repertoires of uh, democratic governance. These scholars and the, uh, these uh, kinds of scenarios and efforts also involve a variety of agencies and officials recruited by the state, the American state, as a means of ensuring command and control and criminalizing those communities or avenues of resistance. So to put it in other words, Reagan officials, including black officials, as they're plundering the coffers of the federal government and destroying HUD's budget in the 1980s, they're also telling affected communities that it's their own fault for being poor, right? Um, and then also through laws, through policies, through patrolling, through surveillance, are taking actual neighborhoods away, right? Through the destruction of HUD properties and moratoriums on new construction of low-income housing or drastically limiting housing vouchers. So it's a, multi -front, uh, it's a multifaceted attack. So the heart of this story is really set during these two term, this two-term tenure of Reagan at 1600 Pennsylvania Ad, and includes all of these stories of black professionals. Now, part of who I want to uh, focus on, right, is this idea of Reagan as uh, someone who is deeply antagonistic to black communities and who black communities uh, see in sim a similar light. And I'm just going to share a quote here from somebody like uh, Harry Belafonte. Reagan is nothing more than a reverse Robin Hood, taking from the poor and giving to the rich. And in many ways, I think this gets to the heart of the issue, right? Many of these criticisms, similar criticisms, aren't simply aimed at Ronald Reagan. They're also warnings that are aimed at the black professional class and the appointees that work within uh, the administration. So they're essentially warnings. Now, within the larger book project, I explain this through analysis um, in a multifaceted uh, analysis. And so I'm not going to get too in-depth with the larger project because then I'd be here all night and I'm sure you guys don't want that. But I look at the first part that I look at that I want to continue talking about are the black appointees, men and women like Lance Wilson, who move back and forth seamlessly, quite seamlessly, between the public sector and the newly desegregated uh, federal government and private sector. The central and most significant figure and part of the story is Samuel R. Pierce who is uh, this figure right here, Samuel R. Pierce, who is Ronald Reagan's HUD secretary from 1981 through 89. So if Lance Wilson is the epitome of the highs and lows of the black professional class, then really Samuel Pierce is the granddaddy of the highs and lows. Now he's a central figure, Pierce is a central figure here in entangling the significance of the HUD scandal. And he's, understand, he's crucial to understanding the broader racial politics of the Reagan-led White House. The second perspective, which um, I'm not gonna talk about today, is the grassroots. So it's not just grassroots in terms of African-Americans who uh, engaged in, say, spectacle protests, like Dorothy King, who's pictured in this, 
who is a homeless shelter activist and affordable housing activist, but it's also HUD employees, career employees who are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, who report, who whistlebro, who sound the alarm essentially repeatedly between 1981 and 1999 that wrongdoing is going on. So that's the second perspective. And then the third policies is looking at grassroots community, the grassroots communities that are most affected by HUD's officials' actions. And the reason why I do this, particularly this last part, is because not only does it allow us to see the, the dissimilarities, right, so contrast, but it also unveils some of the unexpected parallels of the larger story. And if I have a time, I'll get into that a little bit. So I'm going to spend the remaining time talking a little bit about um, the history of Samuel Pierce, because I think it's really important for understanding this idea, this larger idea of race, class, and politics in the administration. Now, this idea of corruption resists ideological explanation. So, in fact, we see, you know, for example, the, HUD, the looting of HUD is actually a bipartisan affair at times. But at the same time, adherence to a certain set of ideological beliefs actually exacerbated the corruption of the era and the corruption at HUD. In part, uh, the uh, uh, unethical actions of people actually increased because the funds were so tight. Political loyalty tests become the unspoken requirement for doling out rewards and punishing enemies. And so in the larger narrative, the White House bears the brunt or the burden of creating this environment but it also has a trickle-down effect, meaning that these black politicos, Samuel Pierce in particular, pick it up and actually learn kind of the process. And I'll just give you an ex a quick example. Ronald Reagan is in uh, New Jersey in the early 1980s, and he's campaigning for a Republican san senatorial campaign figure. And he says, basically to the crowd, if you don't vote for her, I will take money away from you. I will take housing money away from you. Right? You can't do that out loud. But... HUD Secretary Samuel Pierce hears the implicit message in that and the implicit threat in that. So what does he do? He takes away money set aside for Atlanta and funnels it into New Jersey, rewarding the citizens of New Jersey for their loyalty, punishing the people of Atlanta, the HUD figures in Atlanta, who don't even discover the money is missing until they go to use it, and then also setting himself up it's kind of a star loyal employee, right? This is a show of devotion. Look how loyal I am to you. I understand the message. Now, part of when we talk about institutionalizing harm against citizens, right, the state doing that, this is exactly what we mean. That black officials following marching orders from the top actually engage in the politics of harm on the basis of the state. Now, Sam Pierce is an interesting figure in this regard, right? Um, who is Sam Pierce and what would drive him to engage in these kinds of politics? Now, in many ways, he's at the heart of this and the kind of idea of the black professionals at the heart of this crisis. I'd say it actually just uh, uh, transcends partisanship to some degree. You know, we're talking about an upper middle class, middle class African-American who is coming out of the coming into the realities of post-civil rights, uh, anti-segregation life and trying to desegregate institutions that weren't created for him. So we're talking about colleges, corporate boards, right, Wall Street, the White House. And so he comes of age at uh, comes of age in a moment where integration was the civil rights solution. And so having a seat at the table becomes the solution to overcoming inequality. Now we know that this is a simplistic notion, but we have to understand that Pierce's working um, is, is a product of his generation. So it become, Pierce becomes the prototype 
not only for uh, for what's going on in the White House, but for just a larger generation of individuals. He's highly successful. And at the same time, he symbolizes kind of a rapidly disappearing cadre of black, liberal, and moderate Republicans whose conservatism was tempered by their racial communities. Right? So part of what we're seeing is this new wave of black Republican politics that moves in coordination with this new kind of Republican White House conservative politics. So what does it mean? Part of what it means is that for Pierce and other black officials, they made very conscientious and conscious decisions about power, survival, and their own individual advancement of black men and women in an administration that's openly hostile to civil rights and enamored with the free market. So part of this story is about access to power, pursuit of power, but also about survival. Now, I wanna go into a little bit of background about Pierce and just on paper, he's exceptional, right? So Yale graduate, uh, hails from like a two-parent single uh, household. He's an all-star football player. He has a remarkable career. Um, and he's a stint as a US attorney in New York. I mean, he also represents Martin Luther King in the very famous New York Times v. Sullivan uh, case, along with Ralph Abernathy and several other black, uh, several other black ministers in the 1960s. I mean, he's, he's a really remarkable figure and he's also well-known in many circles. Um, and he enjoys, you know, he comes to the attention of the Reagan administration and becomes part of, comes to the attention of the Reagan administration, not just for this long history of civil rights activism, but also because of his long connection to a broader um, integrationist movement or integrationist politics, particularly his desegregation of Wall Street. So he's a, it's a far kind of, it's a far difference from say the on the ground grassroots activism that we associate with the civil rights movement or even the black power movement. But here's an example of a black man who's incredibly powerful within black political circles, who's now moving in a different kind of circle uh, politically. Now Pierce's highlight reel, however, only partially tells a full narrative um, and partially uh, helps us understand his ideological motivations. And I think part of what we have to do is strip a veneer polish off to actually understand what would motivate a highly accomplished individual who's connected to the civil rights movement, who represents Martin Luther King, who desegregates the corporate world to engage in later in the plunder of black communities for over eight years, right? What would do that? And I think part of what helps us explain is actually looking at Pierce and his relationship to his father. Now, Pierce's father is a black man who lives from, uh, who's from the South, but lives in Glen Clove, New York, and who works for most of his life at a whites-only country club. And he, uh, his father ingrains in him deep lessons about race, class, status, and advancement that actually drives much of Pierce's decisions later in life. And I just wanna share a couple of excerpts from, um, uh, about Pierce's father. Now, Pierce's father argued that money and access to exclusive spaces were necessary priorities for black uplift. According to the elder Pierce, money conveyed power offering the only pathway to fulfillment of African-American dreams. And so while Pierce taught his son that power was located solely in white institutions, he also cautioned him to remain vigilant and to never underestimate the treachery of whites. But perhaps the most revealing insight of the elder Pierce's philosophy was his acknowledgement of the racist shortcomings of the free market, contrasted with his faith that African-Americans could still manipulate a broken system to their advantage. Quote, whites will give blacks a lot of latitude, the elder Pierce would often say, if the black individual in question has exploitable skills and can do something well. Now, I think this is really, really important because part of what happens is that Pierce takes that message 
and applies it to his career and it becomes his mantra. And it's when he uh, ends up in the Reagan administration that things begin to go haywire. So we see, for example, that Mother Jones in 1981 calls Pierce uh, the right kind of Negro, uh, the FBI's right kind of Negro leader. And part of that comes because the FBI, while Pierce is actually uh, representing Martin Luther King, contemplates trying to recruit Pierce into um, an effort to discredit and destroy Martin Luther King. And so, the, you know, while he's representing him, he also try, they also try to undermine this idea. And the idea is that behind this, uh, J. Edgar Hoover says, well, he is a like-minded Negro who has the same ideas as us. And so this is really the idea, the motivating idea behind the Reagan administration's decision to really pick him up and make him a part of the administration, that he will follow the rules, that he will get in line, that he will do what he needs to do. So when he arrives, when he finally does arrive at the White House, right, there's this understanding that loyalty to the party is everything, and that in fact, Pierce would be a good team player. And we see it that part of what Pierce understands is that yes, he will be a good team player, but that also he needed to get something in return. So as the years progress, what we see is that Pierce actually wants, uh, despite offering political opportunities here and there, the thing that he wants is a seat on the Supreme Court. So he wants to be, he wants to replace Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court. So how do you do that? You do that by being a good and loyal team player. Now what's remarkable is that as he's doing this and as, as he's helping advance the Reagan administration, he is also helping develop civil rights at the same period. He actually changes the uh, Reagan administration's position on discrimination in public housing during the period. They do a, a 180 on where they stand and they end up supporting uh, fair housing laws during the period because of Pierce. And just to kind of sum up how people feel about him, Sepia Magazine, which is this very popular black uh, periodical, in 1984 votes Pierce the uh, Oreo cookie of the year. Right? So basically a sellout for his uh, role in what they say is destroying black communities. A year later, the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta names him the activist of the year, who best embodies the social vision of Martin Luther King. And this is what I say is the tension that happens that Pierce represents during this period. And I think part of this is kind of, again, thinking about how Pierce thinks about survival and how he thinks about power, right? And so the tensions tell us something about the nature of power, not just how Pierce and Black Reagan appointees ruthlessly rationalize their actions, but also how some Black people, uh, more than we initially imagined, saw the manipulation of an exploitative system as an avenue to Black empowerment and uplift for themselves. So I'm not trying to suggest that all black communities resisted in this way, but instead that certain ones did this, um, employed these methods. And I'm thinking, I'm saying that there are unexpected parallels and overlaps in their actions of these radically different groups of African-Americans. And I just want to close by giving you an example of one such unexpected parallel. And that's the example of Kimmy Gray. So this is Gray right here, who is a housing activist a renowned public housing activist from Washington, D.C. Unlike Pierce, she's not a black elite. She's not a black professional. She's a grassroots organizer. She's, uh, uh, in fact, she's actually not a member of the Republican Party. She is a staunch Democrat. But like Pierce, Gray's story pushes back against the boundaries of categorization. So her ideas, in addition to kind of liberal ideas about uplift and about racial egalitarianism, 
Gray's ideas about empowerment also reveal strains of Black nationalist thought and philosophies of self-help and personal responsibility. More to the point, almost all her ideas about public housing rested on her faith in exploiting a capitalist system for the benefit of poor Black people. So to her, power comes from manipulating an unjust system to her advantage rather than overturning it. And I think that's really, really important. Um, we're the greatest survivors in the world, Gray once declared, referring to poor African Americans. It was a philosophy she shared hundreds of times in radically dissimilar spaces from the halls of Congress to the housing projects of Washington, D.C. As head of the uh, what's called the Kenilworth Parkside Resident Management Corporation, which is a tenant-run uh, management-run orga organization launched in 1982, um, she actually uh, advocates for this idea of purchasing um, the housing project, the public housing projects that African Americans live in. As one of the driving forces of the tenant management uh, movement, Gray, along with several other individuals, very prominent individuals that I'm happy to talk about later on, helps launch sim similar tenant-led movements in dozens of cities from New Orleans to Los Angeles to Boston, right? so all over the country. Part of what we see in this emergence of this kind of tenants' rights movement that's centered around black women is that um, residents begin to gravitate towards unconventional methods and uh, directions because they argued that they were isolated and forgotten and that they had been betrayed by leaders and government officials. The government man, this is a quote, the government man in an age just little DC government who's given one frustrated resident, for example, argued, the government on the hill is jiving too. Just look at those big black limos pulling into the White House for parties and all. My daddy's taxes go to paying for all that. We ought to knock all them dudes off their jobs. They ain't doing nothing for us. So there's this real kind of resentment at the failures of the federal government into the, inter into the lives of African-Americans on the ground. Now, this co in casual conversation, what we end up seeing is that this idea of they, right, so the enemy, ends up popping up, um, particularly around ideas of the white establishment, over and over and over again, where residents begin to see uh, politicians as out-of-touch elites who are complicit in a corrupt system, right? So they end up seeing political affiliation as meaningless, right? So it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican because you're corrupt. And so this is what motivates somebody like Kimmy Gray, who says she calls her theory the mushroom theory of welfare. They keep us in the dark, they feed us shit, and then they see and sit back and see how much we grow. And how much can you grow living in the dark and eating shit? So one of the things that we end up seeing is that Gray ends up using that motivation to partner, make unexpected partnerships with unexpected politicians, right? Because she doesn't care which political party helps her because no matter which way we look at it, it's corrupt and it's failing black communities. So what ends up happening, right, is that she ends up, starts building relationships with Democrats and Republicans, but on the Republican side of things, particularly during the 1980s, as HUD is being decimated, she becomes, uh, she increasingly is call, uh, called upon to testify in HUD and begins to behave in such a way as to lend credence to HUD philosophical ideas and Republican ideas of public housing. She's well known, she becomes a regular within the White House and becomes a favored guest of Ronald Reagan, all the while remaining a Democrat, all the while working for Democrat DC Mayor Marion Barry, who's quite prominent um, in uh, retaining her Democratic uh, credentials. 
She ends up getting millions of dollars in funding from Republican politicians. And in fact, when Jack Kemp becomes Secretary of Hedge Education, uh, Secretary of Housing in 1989, the first person he calls is Kimmy Gray, because he says, I want you to know that we've done it. We've gotten to the White House. Now, Kimmy Gray, right, part of what I think is really important is that between, during this time, Gray becomes one of the primary faces of the Reagan administration, and later George H.W. Bush's presidential administration, housing policies and HUDs. But despite this, she remains a hero, even among black Democrats. Right? So Gray, Gray is hailed as innovative uh, for her ideas and her philosophies, even as her uh, ideas amounted to calling for the elimination of the state from the lives of black and poor people. Now, Gray is no less skeptical of white establishment politics, despite her affiliation with the Republican Party. She continues to assume that most, if not all, politicians and political institutions are corrupt and that mainstream capitalist systems don't value poor people. So in essence, what she's doing is she's manipulating the state and she's manipulating political institutions to take advantage of broken political uh, uh, party politics as a means of survival. Right? So pushing her agenda through any avenue receptive to her proposal, irrespective of uh, partisan uh, politics or what have you. And I just want to close out with this quote. She says, I want to own the plantations. Right? That's what she calls the housing projects. Yes, the plantations. That's what public housing communities um, are, aren't they? And she says this and she gets a round of applause from like 500 African working class and poor African Americans in Washington, D.C. when she says it. So just to conclude, when I look at the example of Kimmy Gray, I see somebody who's not all that different from Samuel Pierce Jr. Of course, there's an imbalance of power. We're talking about one person who is in the White House. We're talking about another person who is working class, poor, and from a housing community. But their ideologies really aren't that different, particularly when you consider this idea of survival. And when you think about how they think about, say, white politicians and white institutions and how to manipulate a system to get what they want. I think part of the difficulty in what I've laid out today is that it operates in this liminal space. So the larger canon doesn't necessarily address all of these issues because black partisanship ends up obscuring a more complex narrative. So in short, I think that we should actually, instead of separating Kimmy Gray and somebody like Samuel Pierce, we need to put them together in order to understand this larger um, narrative and larger story. By examining these intersections, we can really begin to see how these networks not only lay the groundwork for the development and proliferation of, say, a black neoconservative outlook, but also how this is doing the work in the service of establishing a kind of neoliberal black outlook within the Democratic Party in the 1980s through the present. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you guys so much, and I look forward to your questions. Oh, sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for a really rich and wide-ranging talk. I have many questions. I'm going to open it out to the audience first. Sure. Can, you, can you just explain who um, Diamond and Silk are? Oh, sure. <laughs> Diamond and Silk are two, they come from a family of evangelicals, black evangelicals from the South. And they're essentially, um, in 2016, they started a YouTube channel where they said, we're leaving the black plantation and we were Democrats, but now we're Republicans. And it's almost like a, you know, pardon the pun, a dog and pony show where they perform aspects of blackness while also denouncing black people and black Democrats and the Democratic Party. 
What's interesting about them, because these the idea of these kind of like performative politics is actually a dime a dozen, particularly if you look on YouTube. What's interesting about this is that Donald Trump notices them and pull, begins pulling them into his rallies in 2016. So he has these two black women who serve as a warm-up act for him, where, he, where they trash black people and they trash the Democratic Party and promise this kind of mythical idea of this mass shift of black people out of the Democratic Party into the party of Trump. More recently, they have been, you know, lest we think that this is just spectacle, this is just performance, they've been called upon by Republicans to testify in front of Congress, right? And they've actually shown that they have a measure of influence that came out through FEC filings, that they were getting paid by the campaign. Um, and then more recently, they've been shown in kind of this inner circle of Donald Trump, and there's talk of them getting some kind of position within the White House. The problem is we don't really know what that position would be since all they do is repeat kind of the party line when it comes to it. But I think it says something really important about gender, um, not just about race, but also about gender and kind of the performative politics. The last thing I'll say here is that I actually think it's really important that they're black women. And uh, Trump in 2016 by far had more black women as surrogates than any other Republican candidate. I mean, he was rivaling, I think at one point, he had seven black women as surrogates. And the idea is not that, oh yeah, having black women as surrogates will get us more black voters, but it lends a kind of, uh, there's an understanding that black women's voices lend a kind of legitimacy to whatever narrative they're speaking, and in particular, anti-black narratives that they speak, you know, that they, that they share, and also offer a kind of coverage to Trump but also a reassurance to his largely white audience that they are not racist because two black women are telling them that they can't be racist and that they're, they're not the real racist. You said that 96% of women or black women, black women. don't actually believe in the policies of Trump. Mm -hmm. So given that, is it, is it diamond, Aaron? Silk. Silk. How do the evangelists So I'm going to tack on another person to this, even though she sits left the Trump orbit, and I'll say um, uh, uh, Omarosa, mm -hmm. um, because she's also part of this. She's a Baptist, I believe, but um, she's also she's an ordained minister. She comes from this community. And so by and large, there's a real disdain and distaste for these women on the part, not just of black, say, religious communities, but black communities more largely. I mean, people are unapologetic. I would even say like the, the descriptive ways that, they, that people talk about that, talk about these uh, women, um, is, is deeply, deeply harsh and is a reflection of the kind of rage people feel towards black people who are seen as you know, traitorous to the race or advancing the agenda of some, an individual that people view as a white supremacist. With that said, Omarosa is fascinating because while she's widely disdained and vilified, she continues to have a community within black, the black church community. And she continues to have, even as while she's at the, the peak of being, you know, like an anti, I mean, being a pro-Trump loyalist partisan. We see, for example, when she gets married, Tons of civil rights leaders attend her wedding in the Trump Hotel. Right? There is no point where she is excommunicated from her larger religious, black religious community. So I think part of what this tells us is that, one, there are a whole lot of people, a whole lot more people like this 
within these communities, even as you know, people hold this, them in disdain, but that also some of them learn how to navigate really the politics, the everyday politics of existing within these communities. Um, and I think one of the things that you see is that when many of them exit out of the Trump orbit, they go on a religious redemption tour. So one redemption is talking bad about your former employers, as is the case with Omarosa, but the other part is using the religious tether, right? Because religion is so important to black communities, using religious tether to say, I've been ordained, you know, I've been, I've been saved by the grace of God. I knew, I recognized that he was racist and I was doing a disservice to my community by being in his employ. Now it might all be smoke and mirrors, but it is an important part of this kind of, what we see as this redemption. Can I piggyback on that and ask about the kind of religious aspect with black professionals in the 1980s, if there was any, um, and to what extent do you consider these black professionals to be, as you said towards the end of your talk, a kind of pathway to a kind of black neoliberalism or neoconservatism, as you, as you mentioned? Sure. So one of the most interesting parts about this is that a lot of these black professionals are not religious in the slightest. Okay. You know, they are like, you know, they talk about they go to church, yeah. they're, you know, faithful. Black people exhibit high levels of religiosity. Something like 86% of African Americans they self-identify as religious or churchgoers. Um, so they are churchgoers, they are religious, but their religion is not their motivating factor. During the 1980s, there's this huge cross-section of black professionals who are motivated by money. And they are motivated by access to power. And they're also motivated, and I argue that this comes about because of the, you know, the actual successes of the civil rights movement, particularly the legislative su successes, where they argue, you know, we have legislated away racism and discrimination. We know that that's not true, but we have all these legislations in place. Now we want an equal opportunity to be as corrupt as these white men and earn as much money as these white men. And so we see all of these efforts, really, and kind of the spurring around the idea of business and access right, as, a, as a point of entry, but also the possibilities that come along with deregulation, significantly lower taxes, and a whole lot of black people say, I want to be on board of that. I want to be a part of that. The other thing is that the economics of uh, you know, the Reagan administration, the, the veneer, you know, uh, I think I have the quote from Jesse Jackson where he said, it might look appealing, but you know, it actually is like Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. So be very, very careful. But there's this real appeal where we see a lot of people who try and de-racialize the Reagan administration and say, this is simply about money. This is simply about having access to opportunity. And therefore, since Reagan is about deregulation, since Reagan is about tax cuts, since Reagan is about you know, um, opportunity zones uh, or empowerment zones, it depends on who you're talking about at the time, then I can be on board with this. And I do think that this is, it's no mistake that this is the era of not just an a, a explosion in wealth, but it's the era where we first get, you know, where we begin to get these drastic and significant differences amongst black classes. So we already have, you know, different classes amongst black people, but we get not, I mean, it's a really small minority. <laughs> it's really, really like it's a fracture, but we get the development of like a black super wealthy class. Right? Uh. Oprah becomes a billionaire out of this era, right? So it becomes easy for people to say, well, I'm a Republican, but I'm a Republican for fiscal reasons, right? I'm a fiscal conservative who wants to use the market. Um, and so I think we see a lot of this going on during this era. What becomes interesting is that 
and not only lays the groundwork for neoconservatism, so the Clarence Thomases, the, you know, the, um, uh, the Ben Carsons, the things like this, but also who are both, you know, both of these individuals intersect with religion, but it lays the groundwork for kind of conservative democratic politics, mm -hmm. black politics, that increasingly takes up and takes up um, uh, takes up strains all the way up through somebody like Barack Obama, who at the time you know he jokingly says, uh, I believe in like 2011, you know, if this were the 90s, I'd be George H. W. Bush, mm -hmm. and he's joking about it, but he's also kind of serious about it, mm -hmm. um, in part because there is now room for a different kind of black politics, even if it's just a small cross section of black communities. Black people are the most liberal people on the planet. But if we see like how it ends up um, teasing out, and we see, as we see the Democratic Party embrace some of these politics, this is how these strains get incorporated into the Democratic Party and emerge in kind of this black neoliberalism that we see later on down the line. So I think, just to conclude, I think this is not just the birth of black neoconservatism, but it's also the birth of black neoliberalism. Um, well, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned Marion Barry. Just like, I mean, my understanding is that this Reagan era was also kind of a major era of black mayors across yes. the country. Um, and I wanted to ask if there are like more surprising connections to the Republican Party, or like just there's kind of like any neoliberal connection within that phenomenon too. Sure. So one of the I think shocking things is that Marion Barry initially runs as, you know, says his claim to fame is, I'm a former Black Panther, I'm a Black nationalist, you know, he's like, I feel more at home in a dashiki than I do in a three-piece suit, and all these things. So it's like this kind of idea of a Black radical tradition, and he's rejecting the establishment, what he says is the establishment politics and the abandoned politics of abandonment, he says the Democratic Party has given you. At the same time, out of the other side of his mouth, he says, you know, I'm conservative enough that you might call me Ronald Reagan after dark. And we do know that even as he clashes with the Reagan administration through the 1980s, he displays kind of an, an amazing amount of calculated pragmatism in order to get what he wants. And so I think he sees, and Kimmy Gray actually helps him campaign in his first mayoral bid, and she's instrumental to helping him win because she rounds up these kind of black voters and says, you know, we have to turn out and help him win. And so we do see these kind of weird and odd partnership, or what we would call peculiar, but I think what people on the ground would say, no, this is transactional politics. You know, and it's the model of, you know, there are no permanent friends, there are no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. And we begin to see this, particularly in this kind of, you know, I feel uncomfortable saying post-civil rights era because the civil rights era is, hasn't ended, but it's what they're calling it, this post-civil rights moment where black mayors are being integrated into the structure um, of larger American politics and are engaging in the kind of calculations that traditional politics has done for, for generations, and also engaging in a kind of pragmatism. The one thing, the other thing, and I think you see this with mayors, right? Mayors through and throughout. You know, we can have a whole separate conversation about Kwame Kilpatrick in Detroit later on down the road. But I think the other area where you see it is, I was shocked at the number of black women housing activists who are willing to engage conservative politics in order to get what they want and that it actually informs far more of this like 1980s affordable housing um, uh, movement than scholars have initially credited. And I think part of that is that they don't know what to do with it. 
how do you explain this group of women that we largely describe as the most radical and most liberal group of you know political actors uh, in the modern 20th century purposely engaging with conservative politics? And the reason is that they're not interested in this idea of categorization. They're interested in getting what they want. Um, that was a very interesting talk. I, I, I wonder if you could say a few words about the Pierce. The Pierce, in some ways, strikes me as kind of a like a dying breed of Republican. I mean, this is a guy who first cuts his teeth in the Eisenhower administration. Mm -hmm. He then works in the Nixon administration, right? So and he he's kind of come. And in between, he's appointed by Nelson Rockefeller, mm -hmm. right? So there's a Republican governor, uh, you know, to be, uh, uh, I guess, a New York State Supreme Court justice. Uh, mm -hmm. Anybody has a prominent position. And he, I don't know if there's a parallel to somebody like an Edward Brooke from that period, but it kind of seems like he's, it's this, style of a Republican trying to work through a, uh, a African-American working through the, the old Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And this seems like kind of like the last gasp. Absolutely. I think he is the last of really one of the, the, like the old Republican liberal guard. Yeah. That he is an Eisenhower Republican. He is a Rockefeller Republican. He is, you know, to some extent, a Nixonian Republican, although he's he's known for having a different kind of integrity than, say, the Nixon administration as a whole. Like, he comes out of this unscathed. On top of that, he comes from a very famous um, uh, civil rights family. So his wife comes from a, just a long line of uh, civil rights advocates. You know, her father is the former head of the board of the NAACP for 20 years. Mm. They co-found Harlem Hospital. Her sister, uh, she and her sister are instrumental, but really her sister is instrumental in um, creating modern chemotherapy. So they have these deep, deep civil rights ties. And so Pierce is trying to navigate this, mm -hmm. but he is doing it, one, through the Republican Party, but also doing it through this old school way of thinking like, we can embrace social justice capitalism. So. Just to give you an example, he co-founds Freedom National Bank, which is this black bank where minorities can get ideas, minorities can pour money into it, federal government pours money to it, and African Americans could get loans for startups, for homes, for mortgages, for businesses. And it's you know Martin Luther King puts his Nobel Peace Prize winnings in the bank. But the idea is, well, we don't need to march in the streets because we can invest in the banks. We can invest in our pockets. And he's still trying this out, but the party, the Republican Party, so black Democrats are also doing this, but their Democratic Party is going in a different direction. The Republican Party is moving in a radically different direction. They are marching further and further to the right. It's not inevitable, but it's where they end up. And by the time 1980 comes around and Ronald Reagan is elected, this whole slew of African-American Republicans who in 76 were like, over my dead body, I would rather be somewhere else. See 1980 as a turning point, but also see it as an opportunity. And so for Pierce, this is his opportunity to end up on the Supreme Court. You know, when Reagan comes calling, this is the moment. And so, but also while he's doing this, the party itself is changing and the kinds of black people they are attracting into the party are also changing. So those liberal kind of old guard black Republicans, they're gone. 
and they're being replaced with a much younger, uh, uh, much younger guard that has very, very different interests, but also is following the conservatism of the larger apparatus of the Republican Party as well. If I can just ask on a follow-up, he couldn't have turned, let's say, like 1976, when he's like over my dead body. Mm -hmm. He couldn't have turned to the Democrats and been accepted. No. Right. Well, I think he could have partnered with, I mean, he's widely respected amongst black politicos um, on, on the left. But um, I don't think it was, he still felt strongly that there was no place for him in the Democratic Party. And so he maintained, and you see, I mean, Ed Brooks says the same thing. People are like, you know, why are you a Republican to your dying day? And he says, I can't leave the party. Where else am I going to go? So they're still too conservative on the scale, you know, on the, the political scale, um, although they do ally. So somebody like Thaddeus Garrett, for example, is Shirley Chisholm's head of public po of domestic policy for three years and then runs for a, re a Republican seat in Congress in Ohio and then goes to work for Ronald Reagan, is pulled into the scandal, but then delivers the eulogy at Shirley Chisholm's funeral when she dies later on in life. Right? Yes. Sorry, still pouring. Okay. Thanks. Um, I'll just go. Uh, so you spoke about these black women who are willing to engage with conservative politics as like a tool, um, and that they were less concerned about the category, like racial categories that they would be placed in. Uh, it seems like that's less likely to happen now as identities are. Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like they're becoming more conflated with politics. Like you can't of certain political, mm -hmm. like truly be of certain like political stances if you are of a certain identity or else you're like forgoing like your community. Um, so what, like where did the change happen and mm -hmm. why um, that like this is no longer? Okay. So when you say yes, we're almost going to push back a little bit. Okay. So I think superficially, yes. Um, polarization, including, you know, like racial polarization, political polarization in the United States has gotten far worse. It's been exacerbated every year since 1980, right? So the quick answer is, in 1966, for example, it's not uncommon for a Democrat to be married to a Republican. Now, in 2020, people say, you know, it would be, it, it is evil to be married to somebody of different ideological or different political affiliations than myself. But, and this is especially true, I think, of um, African Americans who hold a special level of, of anger and hostility towards African-Americans who self-identify as Republicans in 2020, more specifically black uh, African-Americans who identify with the Trump administration. But underneath that, we still see very much that African-Americans are one, willing to vote for Republican politicians, particularly at a state and local level, and that they've been pretty consistent about that. It's just the national level where they've never been interested. And then two, um, African-Americans are more than willing to work with conservative politics and policies when the money is right. And so we see a lot of this in, say, for example, the charter school movement, where there is a ton of conservative money, and yet there's not necessarily concern from black communities about that money being conservative. We see it in other partnerships. For example, Van Jones um, has a partnership with the Koch brothers, who are you know, massive Republican donors and yet their prison partnership right, and their prison reform initiative is, and Van Jones initiative is, is funded by, by Coke money. Um, and so I think when we see interest convergence, that's when we see a willingness to um, kind of ignore the boundaries or even the um, categorizations that come along with political affiliations. 
So it's there. It's just that on a large, explicit stage, it doesn't look like it's there. Um, so from what I've heard, it sounds like a uh, strategy going into 2020 is that the Trump administration is at least in some way trying to appear as though they're trying to appeal more to the African-American community. We saw the Super Bowl ad supposedly focused on criminal justice. Um, do you think that this kind of would intersect with this sort of pragmatism in a way that will actually be effective in the Trump campaign, peeling away some of the black vote from the Democratic Party? Or do you think that this is more just kind of that outward projection to their base and to other Republicans who might be uncomfortable by the notion that Trump is racist, saying okay. that, okay, it's more comfortable for me to support someone? So all of the above. So the short answer is there's nothing new about what Donald Trump is doing. If anything, his strategy in 2016, which was this kind of half-hearted, what, what the hell do you have to lose, is unique amongst Republicans who at the very least usually try and do kind of a head nod or at least some symbolic kind of gestures towards African Americans. Reagan's Morning in America commercial is probably perhaps the most famous of this where you know he has people of all different races saying like you're an American, you're an American, you're an American. I'm going to focus on the black woman who is a teacher. I'm going to focus on the black man in the construction hat, right? Even as you're not necessarily, your policies don't necessarily reflect that. Um, Nixon is also, you know, quite adept at this. It has this whole black capitalism initiative and campaign that in some respects does pay off. It's roughly about 13% of the African-American vote at the time. Um, what is interesting, I think, with Trump is that where it may pay dividends is not in some sweeping change or some sweeping shift of African-Americans into the Republican Party. In order for that to happen, Donald Trump would have to do something so transformational that it would rival, essentially, the New Deal and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, because that's the last time we see that kind of party affiliation. It's the second term. Um, so he would have to do something like reparations for all, or universal health care for all, or something like that. Instead, what we see is, like you said, coverage to a base that is deeply uncomfortable with the idea of racism, even as they espouse racist ideas coverage to suburbanites and independents who are deeply uncomfortable with uh, and want to feel reassured. And then also a kind of depressive tactic where we see that um, it actually pays off in terms of depressing turnout amongst African-American voters in swing states. And those are the people that are targeted. So it's not that African-Americans are going to overwhelmingly go out and say, yeah, vote for Donald Trump. But instead they might say, ah, well, the Democrats are much better. How about I just don't vote? This is what we see in 2016. The last thing that I'll say is the one area where Trump stands to make inroads, and or small inroads, is with black men. And that's because black men have shown more, of, to, compared to, but there's a gender difference between black men and black women, black men have shown more of an affinity um, towards Republican overtures. And so, you know, when we look at, say, who made up black Trump supporters in 2016, no surprise, both of them are black men. And they're black men that fit a certain demographic. So one of the things that I think that we see, that the points that Donald Trump is hitting in, um, in 2020, we can look at them, and particularly black women are looking at them with distaste. You do not find them motiv motivating in the slightest. But amongst a small cross-section of black men in swing states, it may be enough for them to say, maybe I'll cast a ballot for Trump this time around. So if we see the number, I mean, it could go either way. We could see black voters go up for Trump. We could see them go down. Anything within the 4% to 18% is normal. 
Um, but I would keep an eye in terms uh, of gender differences and appeals. Um, keep an eye on that. So I have a question about kind of why the HUD scandal hasn't been written about so much in scholarship. I mean, you mentioned this at the beginning of your talk. And is that related to, I know we spoke earlier about sources yeah. and the lack of, or in some cases, the abundance um, of sources? Right. There's no shortage of sources on Samuel, somebody like Samuel Pierce, and yet those sources tell us so little. Um, now, on the one hand, I think uh, the point I made about housing fatigue is very real. Mm. Like, there had been this like, massive housing scandal in, in Texas uh, in the 1970s. There have been this housing scandal with developers. You know, HUD has really been plagued by scandals. Um, and just for anybody who's interested, HUD is really a place for both incompetence more broadly across partisan administrations, but also where people have seen this as kind of, uh, HUD has become racialized. And people have seen it as essentially kind of a place to do misdeeds, again, across administrations. Um, so people are tired. That, and I don't think people, um, I don't think people really care at the time. And so, um, you know, when I mentioned this in the talk, as HUD is being gutted, they're saying, well, these are poor people who deserve to be poor. They don't have enough initiative. And I think one of the central things that the Reagan administration does is they make poverty a moral failing. Mm -hmm. So they say to be poor is to be immoral. Mm -hmm. It's to have bad morals, it's to have bad motivation. To be wealthy, now that, that is a moral, right? Mm -hmm. A moral virtue. Yeah. Correct, and I, I think, you know, to bring it back to this idea of religion, mm -hmm. you know, the emergence of, you know, the prosperity gospel yeah. is central to this as well, right? To be wealthy mm -hmm. is to be, you know, morals to be godly, to be poor is to be ungodly. Um, so we do see the development of this. So as this is happening, there are certain organizations like the National Association, uh, uh, National Organization and Association for um, Homelessness mm -hmm. that are like, the Reagan administration is creating a crisis mm -hmm. that we are going from like 4% homelessness to a 1000% increase in a matter of one year. And people are saying, well, if they're homeless, they deserve to be homeless. Um, and that, you know, pull yourself up, up by your bootstraps. So this is happening too. Um, then I think the, the last point about this is that um, when the scandal does break, people are shocked and it becomes made for TV. And it becomes something that people can't, people watch the hearings on C-SPAN. All the hearings are on C-SPAN. You can all watch them now if you're interested. Um, but part of it is that the magnitude of the, of the uh, transgression is revealed all at once. So instead of being a trickle, right, even as there are red flags, like uh, Samuel Pierce having the most expensive car out of the entire administration, Samuel Pierce having some like scandal with housing, the inspector general reporting that there are misappropriations of funds every single year <laughs> up until the, the, the scandal is di uh, discovered. Um, all of these things have been a trickle and instead, so when it comes after, you know, Jack Kemp of all people turns it in, he discovers that, wait a second, he says that there's $2 billion missing. And that's when he blows the, he blows the whistle, even though there are multiple whistleblowers, and then it's discovered it's much bigger. The American public says, well, how could this happen? And in, you know, several of the studies that come out after this, it's like, well, it happened because we ignored it as it was happening. And then the last point I'll say about this is that one of the, the difficulties in writing about this project 
is that many of the individuals do not want their stories to be found. So the HUD, uh, uh, you know, the HUD officials go to great lengths to cover up their misdeeds. And I was telling you guys a story in the office about my favorite story is the one where the woman is shoving paper into her mouth and eating it so that nobody will discover it. Right? People set things on fire. They destroy, uh, you know, destroy items. And actually, Congress does uh, this is all a service when they try and recreate the entire, um, uh, the entire narrative around this, rebuild it as part of the hearings. But then there's a the story of somebody like Kimmy Gray, who also does not want to be discovered because she wants to tell her narrative. She wants to tell her narrative on her own terms. She says, "I don't want white people telling my story." She also doesn't want to be claimed by the left or the right. And so she's very cagey about her sources. She's very cagey about her papers. She's very cagey about who she will allow to report on her doings. Right? Um, so we see a lot of this. So it means a lot of investigation. It means a lot of uncovering. And then the last thing that I'll say is, even after the scandal happens, really the high point of the scandal is 89 to roughly 91, 92. The regulations, they called sunlight laws, regulations passed, laws changed, transparency, all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. The public gradually forgets and then also gradually stops caring. And so there are certain dimensions of this. I'll say one is that housing, people tend to think housing is boring, it is deeply unsexy, right? They hear housing, they hear bureaucratic jargon. And actually, this is how some of these figures get around, right? Mm -hmm. Manipulate the system. They deliberately use boring, jargony, technical language. To exploit the system and to you know uh, have the public ignore it, um, but then also it says something about how little the public cares about the poor. I mean, they just eventually over time, people stop caring, and so I think one of the things that we have to be very um, very attentive to is that the conditions that produced this kind of massive scandal don't go away. And they're not unique to the Reagan administration. So that, in fact, you can, you can say that this is a story about the Reagan administration, but we know that corruption marks the administration of George W. Bush. His secretary of HUD has to step down for ethical reasons. We know that when the smoke clears and when the dust clears around the Trump administration, that there are going to be tons of questions around ethics and corruption, particularly when it comes to HUD. And we've already seen a couple of red flags when it comes to Ben Carson and his family and kind of loyalty and things like that. So the conditions are still there, but so too are the conditions that lead us to really ignore this in both the scholarship um, and the public. And then one last thing that I'll say here, one little teeny tiny thing. I think scholars have largely ignored this because they don't know what to do with it. So there are, there's an amazing body of literature on housing activism and politics and then you come across people who don't fit within the narrative. So what do you do? You footnote it or you erase it. So that's, I think that's a, an understandable approach, but it's the approach that we should push back yeah. against. Well, on that note, please join me in welcoming Leah for a really rich talk and really engaging question. Thank you. Professor Leah Wright-Rigueur is an Associate Professor of Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School and the Harry S. Truman Associate Professor of American History at Brandeis University. That's all for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor Leah Wright-Rigueur for joining us for this event. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. The Ballpark Podcast is supported by the Phelan family. Our theme tune is by Ranger in the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. 
Look them up at rangerswings.com. Check out this feed for a one-on-one interview with Professor Wright Rigueur, where she talks about the racial politics of the Reagan administration, the unique position of black Republicans in American politics, and the links between historical civil rights protests and today's movements. To listen to our other event recordings and episodes of our regular podcast, The Ballpark, just enter LSE US Center into your search engine of choice. We'd love to hear what you think about the US Center and our events. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.